Whenever outgrow being anxious, have you noticed? In fact, the older we get, we tend to get worse at it. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition with what? With thankful hearts, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. That's from Ephesians. And the sister epistle, Colossians, says something similar. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. The reason that works and the reason the peace of God transforms our lives and transcends our understanding is the blessing of a little word called perspective. How can you, how can you have a peace that passes understanding in the midst of anxieties? Um, and what does Thanksgiving have to do with that perspective? If you realize all that you have to be thankful for, all of a sudden the anxieties that seem to be overwhelming in your life can sort of fade away. Uh, just before I turned 50, my body decided to give me a little gift. I was laying in bed one morning and all of a sudden it felt as if a physician took a syringe and inserted it <clears throat> just to the left of my spine. And uh, while he had that thing in there, he was he twisted it around a little bit. I had never felt pain like that, especially just laying in bed. Couldn't imagine what it was. Called a doctor friend of mine, and he said, he asked me a few other questions, and he said, sounds like you got a kidney stone. And I thought, no, no, that's for old people. <laughs> I remember my dad had a kidney stone, and I just thought, it's because he's old. Well, so after a couple of more days of writhing pain, I decided to go to the doctor, went to the urologist, took an x-ray, came in, and uh, he said, just a matter of fact, well, you got a kidney stone. And suddenly, I felt really old. He held it up to the little light and showed it to me because I, I asked him if he was sure. And he just kind of looked at me. He says, yes, I'm sure. And, and how big did he say it was? I forget. I won't, I won't gross you out by telling you, but it was larger than I cared to hear. He showed it to me on the screen, and then he began to tell me the methods by which we could get that little demon out. And I felt, you know that scene in, um, in uh, the book of one of those Samuel books, I think, I guess, Second Samuel, where David does that census he shouldn't have done, and the Lord says, okay, you got a choice of how I'm going to deal with this. You can have, you know, this much time of play. You can have this much time with your enemies. And it's like, where's the good solution in this, on these options? That's what I felt like when the doctor says, we can do this, this, this. Uh, you know what? None of those sound good. And so I just decided to, like David did, to fall into the hands of the Lord. Turns out the Lord takes his own sweet time when it comes to passing a kidney stone. And uh, anyway... But uh, finally, finally, the, the demon left my body, and um, 
I, I had to go back to the doctor and, you know, redo tests all over again to make sure, you know, think that it was all out and all that. So I did, and they said, well, we need to we'll take some tests, and we'll call you in about a week to let you know how the tests go. So I get the call about a week later, and it's not the doctor. It's, I'm not even sure it was a nurse. It's the person whose job it is to call and give you, you know, the answers to to your life. And so um, on the phone, and she, she says, well, Mr. Stiles, I'm looking at your, uh, your report here, and uh, this says that your kidneys have failed. I said, look at the top again. Does it say Wayne Stiles at the top? She says, yes. It's the report says your kidneys have failed. And she's just like, you know, like I've ordered pizza or something. It was. So I said, well, what's the next step? Dialysis? And she says, no, you'll need to come in and maybe we'll do some more tests. And I said, well, I'll be there in 10 minutes. So we did more tests and uh, turns out that it, my kidneys hadn't failed, that it was just some uh, misdiagnosis based on the fact that I'd had a kidney stone. And I thought, you know, this isn't the first time they've They've dealt with this. I was just so surprised that it's not like, you know, we're seeing some things we don't like. Why don't you come in and let's do another test? Just, nope, your kidneys have failed. Would you like pepperonis with that? (laughs) But it turns out that the test had been skewed somehow because of the kidney stone. And anyway, here's the point of what I'm saying. Perspective. You can be amazingly grateful for your lousy life. If all of a sudden you lose something, and then you get it back. In in the space of a phone call, I lost my kidneys. And then all of a sudden, after some more tests were done, I got them back. Turns out it wasn't the problem I thought it was. Perspective. There's a magazine, Britain's best-selling hiking magazine, in fact, called Trail. And it gives advice on basically how to make a safe descent for hikers uh, if you're in bad weather. And there was a particular article that said, here's how to get out of uh, Britain's tallest peak in the midst of a blizzard. And except the magazine made a mistake and it gave directions. It led climbers the wrong way. In fact, led them what would have been right off the north face of the mountain. And fortunately, they caught it in time, and they didn't print it, but it was, like, really close. And a spokesman for the magazine apologized and said, quote, anybody following that route in poor visibility and with snow cover could easily have walked straight off the edge. You know, and I thought, I read that, and I thought, you know, nobody has a problem being warned about taking steps off the face of a mountain. In fact, we appreciate that. But when we're warned about taking steps off the face of eternity, all of a sudden the world tells us to keep our agenda to ourselves. The fact is, it's only the grace of God and another breath that keeps us from the edge of eternity. And there is something very serious about taking the step and taking that last breath if you haven't been told what happens when you step off the edge? 
Our sins separate us from a God who is holy, absolutely holy, and we are not. And so to enter his presence with any sin at all is to invite condemnation for eternity. So if our sin's the problem, then taking that sin away has to be the solution, and that's what God did when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and rise again. Um, I hope that you've been told that, and I hope that's a decision that you've made. There are two different people that respond to that message. There are those that recognize their need, and in, in humility they accept it. And there are those that decide, you know what, I don't need you to tell me about walking off the face of a cliff. I'll deal with it myself. Well, Jesus dealt with these two different people as well, with those who heard his word and follow him and those who decided that they didn't want to. Turn with me to Mark chapter 3, and we will continue going through the book of Mark together. Mark chapter 3. So far in Jesus' day, as we've gone through the book of Mark, there have been really two groups of people with two opinions about Jesus. Um, Christ has had an, an immense popularity in the first two chapters, primarily because he is a healer. He is a healer. People flock to Jesus in order to be healed. And a number also come to hear him preach, but mainly people are interested in their physical healing. Interestingly, the people who were most concerned about his preaching were those who weren't interested in applying it, and that was the religious leaders. We've seen in weeks past about the religious leaders wagging their finger at Jesus for not obeying the Sabbath as they define it, and about... Um, Forgiving sins. You know, who is Jesus of all people to do that? Well, we're going to see the extent of Jesus' popularity, sort of look at the good side of it for a change this morning. Mark chapter 3, let's start in verse 7 and read a few verses. <clears throat> Mark 3, 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. The area that's mentioned here, if we were to take a map and basically plot it, matches, interestingly enough, the extent of the kingdom of Israel under the reign of David and Solomon. And when you have Jesus going around offering the kingdom of God to, uh, to Israel, if they will simply repent, it's not a coincidence that Mark includes the entire region that included the kingdom of David and Solomon, Jesus has already, at this early point in his ministry, influenced the vast area that matches what David and Solomon controlled. And what would bring people from such a far distance? Well, they came because they heard of all that he was doing. 
It wasn't his preaching. It was his, his works, his healing. And the text goes on to say that they came to have their physical needs met so much that they pressed about him. There in that verse, verse 10, they pressed about him. The New International Version says they were pushing forward. Literally, the original language says that the, that the crowds fell upon him. They were so uh, desiring to be healed that they fell upon him. And that's why Jesus got in the boat to basically get out into the water and to get away from the people that were, that were pressing him. But the word fall upon him is what is in that verse. Now look at verse 11 and let's make an interesting comparison. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. So here the Spirit of God inspired Mark to put together an interesting selection of words. Whereas the people would fall down or fall upon Jesus, the demons fell before Jesus. And the, the, the demons acknowledged him as the Son of God, and Jesus told them to be quiet. Jesus didn't want the demonic realm to be his witnesses. Interestingly, though, they had a better perspective of who Jesus was than the people. You know, like the book of James says that, um, you know, you believe that God is one, that's great. Even demons believe that, and they shudder. They have a very accurate theology of who Jesus was, the Son of God. And Jesus tells them to be quiet. Why? Why not have some free press? I mean, who better than a demon to say, you know what, I'm afraid of you, you're the Son of God. That would be pretty good press for Jesus, wouldn't it? Except Jesus didn't want his, his word proclaimed through demons. Remember in the book of Acts, chapter 16, when the Apostle Paul was there in Philippi, and there was a, a slave girl who was demon-possessed that ran after Paul. It said, you know, these men are servants of the Most High God. They were telling you the way to be saved. And Paul cast that demon out because a demon is not to, to be a, one who testifies of, of the gospel in any sense. Interesting. I mean, it'd be great to use angels. It'd be great to use even fallen angels. But God doesn't do that. He uses people, which is why I think in the very next verse, we're introduced to the ones he used. Verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 so that, here's a purpose, so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Jesus selected these disciples for a purpose, this threefold purpose, so that they would be with him, that he could send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. You know, the amazing thing about God is that he uses people in his plan. Fallen, needy, sinful people like you and me. Whom God chooses, he uses. 
And I've phrased that very carefully. It's not just that God, God chooses whom he uses, meaning you've got a whole sea of disciples and God says, I'll use you three. Instead, whom God chooses, he uses. In other words, everybody whom God chooses to follow him, he also has chosen to use. These 12 disciples were the original dirty dozen. If you think about the backgrounds that they came from, um, it's amazing. The timeless truths that we can lift from the text here in verses uh, 14 and 15, that Jesus selected these 12 apostles with a particular purpose, that they, first of all, would be with him. A disciple of Christ is with Jesus, spends time with Jesus. Um, and this is well known in our circles. We are, we are big on having the quiet time. We are big on spending time reading the Word and prayer and your personal devotions. And that's great because that's an essential foundation. When you think about spending time with Christ, I don't know of a better way to do that than to be alone with the words of God, the Word of God, and, uh, and, and in prayer. It's essential. And if that isn't a part of your daily routine, uh, it needs to be just as much a part as eating, as sleeping. Because as Christ told Satan when he was being tempted in the wilderness, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You're not just a physical person. You're a spiritual person. And that part of your life needs to be fed just as much and sometimes more than, uh, than your physical life. Jesus chose them first to be with him, and next it says that they might be with him and, not or, and that he might send them out to preach. So once you're with Jesus, once he has filled you with who he is, now you've got something to talk about. And I think the order there is important. First, you spend time with Christ, and then you're able to go out and share about Christ. Don't get hung up on preaching. I think we can, we can grab a general principle there that's just that we simply talk about him. When the Lord provides an opportunity for you and opens wide the door for you to say something about Jesus Christ, you know, you don't have to give your testimony and the four spiritual laws and, you know, give an invitation with just as I am every single time. But you can say something about Christ every single time. We don't do it. I don't do it. But we can. We can. And not only that, it's not just speaking, but it's also doing. To have authority to cast out the demons. Now, we have to take a real general principle there, but it's meeting physical needs. It's meeting real, legitimate needs and burdens. Here it's applied particularly to casting out demons. But in our life, in our circles, we can also apply that in general terms to just 
meeting physical needs in the name of Christ. A disciple not only spends time with Christ, but a disciple also spends time sharing him and also meeting real needs. So a simple lesson that we can glean from the text is that you have been chosen. You have been chosen. Like the disciples, you have been chosen not only to receive God's grace, but also to share it. You have been chosen not only to receive God's grace, but also to share it. The disciples were with Christ, but they also ministered to other people in the name of Christ. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is personal. It is very personal, but it is not private. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is personal, but it is not private. It's not that God simply says, you know what, it's just you and me until the rapture. But I am building into your life so that you can build into the life the lives of other people. Demons do not have that privilege. Demons do not receive forgiveness. They have no testimony to share. They can spout truth. Jesus is the Son of God. But they can't say, let me tell you what he's done in my life. And that is what we can do. That is the privilege we have as broken, needy individuals. And we're just normal people. There's no, none of us are superheroes. Um, I don't know if I've shared this story with you before. I don't know if it's apocryphal or if it's true, but whether or not it's a great story. Uh, Muhammad Ali riding on an airplane. Remember that story? He's sitting up front, first class. They hit turbulence, and the, the stewardess says you know, to everybody, fasten your seatbelts. Ali says, a superman don't need no seatbelt. And she said, well, Superman don't need no airplane. Fasten your seatbelt. There's an element of arrogance of thinking, you know, I don't need to do this. But the reality is God doesn't use any superheroes um, who are unusually gifted. He uses garden variety people like Peter. Every time we think, we think of Peter and James and John, we see them with stained glass. We see them through stained, stained glass, you know, glasses, you might say. Every time we see pictures of the apostles, somebody has painted halos over their heads. Where do we get halos from, by the way? They're not anywhere in the Bible. I think the purpose of a halo, the halos is just to kind of designate which one Judas is, because he doesn't have one. But halos. And that would kind of be neat too, wouldn't it? As soon as you walk into church, all of a sudden a halo shows up. And that way you could know, you know, we need to pray for that guy. He didn't have his halo on. No, God doesn't use superheroes. He uses garden variety people. And in a way, though, we wish he used superheroes because we like that illusion. We like that illusion. You know, we have a uh, pastor who is a celebrity, and uh, that's got, it, it, that's got it, its advantages, but it's also got a downside for us, because we think, when you've got a man that gifted, 
I'm nowhere near that. Therefore, I cannot have an influence. And that's just not true. The norm is people like Peter and John, these fishermen, Matthew, the tax collector. You've got people that are normal garden variety people. We like the illusion for a couple of reasons. Like I said, we can say, well, I'm not a superhero, therefore I can't be effective, or I, I don't need to get involved, or I need to go to seminary, or I need to do X, Y, Z before God can use me. And that's just not true. And the second, I think we like the superhero because we like the, the distance that it creates. As soon as you get up close to somebody and you see who they really are, all of a sudden... Um, they come down off their, their white stallion. Think of Jesus. Where was Jesus rejected? Nazareth. They were saying to Jesus when he came to Nazareth, do here what you did in Capernaum. In other words, show us some magic. Show us a miracle. But they didn't receive his words. Why? Isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? Isn't this the carpenter's son? And they were offended by him because they knew him so well. So God doesn't use superheroes. God uses normal people in incredible ways. You have been chosen by God, not only to receive God's grace, but also to share it. Look at verse 16, and let's meet this dirty dozen. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's take a moment with Judas. Judas. He's always mentioned last. Every time the apostles are listed, Peter is always first, Judas is always last. Interesting to compare these two guys, Peter and Judas. But Judas is really in a category by himself. The New Testament makes it clear if you do kind of a theology of Judas and look all across the, the New Testament at this individual, you see that he never believed in Christ. He followed, and Christ amazingly even gave him authority to cast out demons. And yet Judas never believed. How do we know that? Well, we could take probably 10 or 15 minutes and get into the details of it, but I'll, I'll just skate on the high points. If you want to jot down a couple of verses, you can. Um, in John chapter 6, verse 70, John 6, 70, Jesus called Judas a devil. In John chapter 17, verse 12, um, he, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he said that I haven't lost anyone except the son of perdition. Perdition. That means one who is damned. Interestingly, also after Judas' death, um, remember they filled Judas's position. Matthias took Judas's place, and yet after James died, they didn't 
they didn't replace James. So it wasn't that we need 12 living apostles at all time. It's just that we need 12 apostles. And Judas wasn't one of them. Judas was replaced because he wasn't a believer. James wasn't replaced because they knew as soon as the kingdom comes, James will be resurrected and they'll, uh, he'll, he'll reign. So Judas never was a believer. Interestingly also, if you look at the place where Judas hung himself, um, geographically, it's in a place in the book of Acts refers to it as the, uh, the potter's field or Akeldema, uh, uh, the field of blood. And that's in the Hinnom Valley. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can stand on the porch of the Church of St. Peter at Galicantu, right where the Kidron Valley and the Hinnom Valley meet. And you can see there's a little monastery there. Why would you build a monastery where, Jesus, where Judas hung himself? But they did. And, and there it is. Um, but that's where the field of blood is, and it's in the Hinnom Valley, the very place that Jesus used as an illustration of hell. And I wonder if Judas chose that place on purpose. But the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, interestingly, did you notice in the first couple of verses here, verse 16 and 17, Mark tells us that he gave these three disciples names, new names. To Simon, he gave the name Peter, and to James and John, he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. That probably rolls off the tongue a little better in Greek than it does in English, Boanerges. Sons of thunder. Why did he call them that? I don't know. Maybe because, remember that incident where they were trying to pass through Samaria and the Samaritans wouldn't let them go through? And James and John say, hey, Jesus, shall we call down fire and just toast these Samaritans? That'll take care of them. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're saying. So maybe that, maybe he says, you know what, sons of thunder is what fits with you guys. Who knows? But he calls sons of thunder. And Peter is called, uh, well, Simon is called Peter, which means rock. He gives him a new name. Have you ever found out what your name means? My wife's name, Kathy, means pure. My brother, Matthew, means gift of God. You know what my name, Wayne, means? It means wagon maker. <laughs> well, at least I'm not walking, you know. But more significant than a name given at birth occurs when God changes a name. Abraham, Sarah, Israel, Peter, these are just a few of the names that the Lord gave people. New names. I read about a guy in Illinois named Raymond Allen Gray Jr. Legally changed his name. He, he grew up always being called Bubba. And so he legally changed his first name to Bubba. He also changed his middle name to Bubba. And... He legally changed his last name to Bubba. Howdy. Name's Bubba, Bubba, Bubba. <laughs> I think he dropped the junior, but... Because unless he names his son Bubba, 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 there's not going to be another one ever. 
But I'm not sure what the significance of that name change is, but, but there it is. It really happened. Maybe a better example is when a woman gets married. When a woman gets married, she changes her name. There's a legal change, not only of her name, but also her identity. She's no longer single. Her authority, she's under the authority of her husband. Her function, she's not alone anymore. She now has the function of a wife and eventually, God willing, as a mother. And her future. The change in her name has a significance to the change in her life. When God changes a name, it indicates that something is either happened or it's going to happen. Um, a new relationship, maybe, a, a new character quality, a new phase of life. When God changes a name, he has intention behind it. We see this. I want to point out just a few other passages as we uh, look at our next application in Mark. Slip over to John chapter 1. Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 42. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, brought Simon to Jesus for the first time. In verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. I love that. The first words that Peter hears from Jesus are, You are Simon. You will be Peter. In other words, here's who you are, and here's who I will make you to be. In Mark, we saw that uh, when Peter and Jesus first connected, Jesus said, come and follow me, and I will make you to become a fisher of men. Coming in contact and relationship with Jesus Christ changes you. Whether or not your name is changed legally, there is a change, a change of mission, of purpose, of significance for you personally. Christ has that effect. With Peter, it was not just a matter of a different destiny, but he gave him a brand new name, Peter, which means rock. Um, now, turn to another thing John wrote in Revelation, and let's look at you specifically. I love this part. Revelation chapter 2. Christ was able to look past Peter's weaknesses of who he was to what he could be and what he would be, and it's the same with us. Revelation chapter 2, first of all, we'll look at verse 17. We're not going to explain everything about this verse, but I'll just pick one part of it. Revelation 2.17 he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, and in context, that, in context, that's every Christian who believes in Jesus Christ. To him who overcomes, that's you. I will, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Did you know that that would be true of you, that Christ will give you a new name. 
Not only will he give you a new name, it's a name that nobody knows but you. Revelation 2.17. Look also at a chapter over, Revelation 3, verse 12. Revelation 3.12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Look at all those new names that we get, that you get. A new name known only to you, Revelation 2.17. The name of God, the name of Jerusalem, Jesus' new name. So your new name is either the name of Christ himself or perhaps like Peter, Jesus is going to give you a brand new name that represents the change that he has brought about in you. Revelation 2.17 and 3.12. Tradition holds, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, that each of these disciples followed Jesus Christ to death. Philip and Andrew were crucified in Turkey. Matthew was killed in Ethiopia. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Bartholomew crucified in India. Thomas was speared in India. Simon the Zealot was crucified in Britain. And John, the apostle, was thrown into boiling oil, but he didn't die, so he was exiled to Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. Each of these men were so transformed by their relationship with Jesus Christ that they were willing to die a martyr's death. One more turn, if you would. Turn back to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, for a great personal application. Acts 4, 13. Peter and John are standing in front of the very men that condemned Jesus Christ to death, including the high priest Caiaphas. Verse 13, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Don't slide over those words too quickly. Uneducated, untrained, and yet they had confidence and they were recognized as being with Jesus. The word, therefore, uneducated in the Greek is idiotes. Guess what English word we get from that? <laughs> from idiotes. Uneducated. Doesn't mean they were idiots, but it means they were just plain guys. They were untaught. They were uneducated. They were unschooled. They were ordinary people. And yet, God powerfully used them. That's a great application for you personally because you, like me, are un, uh, uneducated, ordinary people in the sense that we are very normal 
and yet God can use us in a powerful way. On Father's Day a few years ago, Kathy and the girls gave me Billy Graham's autobiography, and I read the book and was most fascinated by a statement that Billy made toward the end of his book. By the way, you know Billy Graham is 99 years old? Amazing. But listen to what Billy wrote. He said one of the first questions he's going to ask when he gets to heaven is, quote, Why me, Lord? Why did you choose a farm boy from North Carolina to preach to so many people, to have a wonderful team of associates, and to have a part in what you were doing in the latter half of the 20th century? God used just a plain old farm boy for his purposes. You say, well, I'm no Billy Graham. But you know what? Billy Graham wasn't Billy Graham. Billy Graham was a farm boy, whom God used in a powerful way. And the thing is, with Billy Graham, we can pretty much know how many decisions were made for Jesus Christ, at least by the cards that were filled out. But that's on this side of heaven. On the, next, on the other side of heaven is when all the, the tally cards are made for the rest of us. And they're coming. We're going to sit there in heaven and somehow the unfolding of God's grand plan of how he's used us in ways we never would have imagined because we simply showed up and we're willing. So here's the second principle. God using you has less to do with your education and giftedness than it does with your willingness. God using you has less to do with your education and giftedness than it does with your willingness. I think more than any other person that lived, Jesus was gifted, no doubt. And yet he chose to limit the use of his abilities. And it's called the, uh, the kenosis, where he, he emptied himself. That is, he came down and he limited himself to a human body. No longer omnipresent, now he decides, now I'm going to be in the confines of a human body. And many of, of his... Um, of his gifts he chose not to use. Many he did, but many he didn't. He limited himself willingly because that was the Father's will. Your life may be the same. You may be far more gifted than you are being able to express for God's glory right now. Jesus was too. And yet Jesus had an incredible impact because he used God's will in his life, the simple following of God's will he used in a powerful way. Same with Peter, John, the rest of the apostles who were just people like us. God using you has far less to do with your education and giftedness than it does with your willingness. Moses said, I'm not a good speaker. Gideon said, I'm not prominent enough. Abraham said, I'm too old. Jeremiah said, I'm too young. Peter said, I'm a sinner. Mary, the mother of Christ, was an ordinary woman, and yet, her mo- and yet her words revealed a heart that God knew he could use. I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your words. Gladys Elward said this, I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done in China. I don't know who it was. Maybe it was a man, a well-educated man. I don't know what happened. Perhaps he died. Perhaps he wasn't willing. And God looked down and saw Gladys Elward and said, well, she's willing. 
You know why mission boards originally wouldn't choose Gladys to go to China? They said she wasn't qualified. Maybe that's why God chose her. To do an incredible thing through an unlikely individual so that God alone gets the glory. I bet if you can look back in your life at the times that God has used you. By that I mean you've led somebody to Christ and you didn't wake up that morning thinking anything like that was going to happen and God laid it in your lap. Or somebody came back to you years later and said, you know, when you said such and so to me, I want you to know how the Lord really used that. And you end up saying, I said that? God using you is as much a surprise to you than it is to anybody else. And that's as it should be. Why? Because God gets the glory. Heaven is going to be a lot of that, where we just go, Lord, I had no idea that you would use me to that extent. What an honor. And God gets the glory. God using you has far less to do with your education and giftedness than it does with your willingness. Let's pray. Our Father, you use those whom you choose. And that's all of us. Whether we get to see the effects of that right now, or whether we know that those effects are happening because you tell us they are, we're grateful. I think of the simple pastor Mordecai Ham that had very little effect in his ministry, and yet in leading Billy Graham to Christ, the effect was enormous. May we never look down upon an opportunity to minister thinking that it's insignificant, but instead trusting you like a seed planted in the ground, you will cause it to sprout and to grow and to become the biggest of all trees. Father, open our eyes to see the opportunities. Give us the courage to take the opportunity. Give us the faith to realize that in doing that, you can work far greater things than we can ever ask or imagine. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.